This is a Dear Holmes mystery. Letter 1. Dated the 25th of April, 1899, from John H. Watson at the Imperial Hotel in West Cliff-on-Sea. My dear Holmes, I hope that this letter finds you well, and that my brief absence will allow you to capitalize upon projects from which I have no doubt been a distraction. I am most grateful to you for your recommendation of the Imperial Hotel at Westcliff. However, I am writing you after having had a deeply unsettling conversation with one Dr. J. Richardson Armstrong. My journey to Westcliff-on-Sea from Fenchurch Street Station was singularly uneventful. I was able to sit in splendid isolation whilst reading my copy of the Times and contemplating the outcome of the proposed Blurmfontein Conference in Southern Africa. I was grateful to find that even the ferry at Tilbury was not unpleasant or arduous, and on arrival at the South End Railway Station I quickly found a trap and driver to convey me the few miles to the Imperial. The manager, Mr. Molinari, was most gracious, and I was pleased to be given a room with something of a sea view. Once unpacked, I ventured out to explore the seafront, and, I might add, even to set foot upon the sandy beach. Here the evenly spaced wooden groins stretch out seaward to moderate the flow of the tide and movement of the sand. I must confess that exposure to the sea air and my decision to travel to Westcliff-on-Sea have indeed been beneficial. It was only after my conversation with Dr. Armstrong that I began to grow uneasy with my stay. You may recall my enthusiasm after reading his article in The Lancet last month on the treatment of diphtheria by way of the injection of an antitoxin. Thankfully, although I was unable to attend the doctor's lecture in London, not all was lost. I presented at a lecture in the town hall here in Westcliff this week, delivered by Dr. Armstrong himself, and subsequently found that he is staying in the Imperial as well. Not only that, my good fortune continued, as two days ago, after introducing myself to him in the hotel foyer, I was unexpectedly invited to take dinner with him that evening. It is the outcome of this meeting that has encouraged me to write to you, Holmes. Whilst over dinner, our conversation focused upon the merits and the remarkable results of his treatment in general practice. He also spoke a good deal of his appreciation for brandy. The conversation that followed, on the other hand, I found disquieting. It would appear that, due to my association with you, my name has become known to Dr. Armstrong, and it was this that has encouraged him to confide in me. I had had the foresight to take with me a small notebook in order that I might record some of the narrative regarding his treatment of diphtheria, but now I found a further use for it. Taking it from my pocket, and with his consent, I made a record of what he related to me. You may think me something of a fool, Watson, if I tell you of my disquiet while staying among these lavish surroundings, but I am indeed ill at ease here. It appears that through the publication of my work in the Lancet, and thus the implied status that I have within the medical profession, I have been provided with a rather luxurious room on the second floor. I must confess that I was initially most grateful for my grand room, as it is richly furnished in silks and velvets. It has an elegant seating area, a private bathroom, and a rectangular bay window that provides me with a view towards both the Thames and the sea. Not only do I have a panorama of beach to enjoy, but also the ability to watch the myriad ships navigating the Thames and even on towards the artillery firing range and naval base with its hospital at Chubrinus, where I was the guest speaker. Armstrong paused for a moment as he saw my questioning look and then smiled. Ah, I am not only here in Westcliff to present my work to family doctors such as yourself. I was invited by the Admiralty 
to address a cohort of armed forces medical staff at the naval hospital. It is not the room, per se, that Mars my stay here, Watson. It is more the mysterious, nay, bizarre behaviours of the guests in the rooms adjacent to my own. The commonplace banging of doors and occasional raised voices were not unexpected, but there is much more. There is a persistent sound of pacing on the floor of the room above. Some mornings it will start before I've finished breakfast. Other days it will start up just as I begin to enjoy the view of the sunset. It is as though the occupant is driven to do it. Not only that, but on the wall to the right there is often a strange patterned tapping noise. Imagine, sir, trying to fall asleep whilst mice tap dance. That is precisely the image that comes to mind as I lay in bed, enduring this clamour. And then there is the matter of the foreign whispers, or more so whispered conversations, that I hear. My profession requires me to travel constantly, not only within England, but across oceans to Asia and America, yet the voices I hear mystify me. Were I a man of greater faith, I might be inclined to believe I was hearing the whispers of some unearthly being. Dr. Armstrong paused for breath, but hardly allowed me to open my mouth before continuing. If that were not enough, there is the seemingly random appearance and movement of a strange coloured light in the bedroom window to the left of my own. It begins as a faint orange glow. Then slowly the window becomes awash with green and orange light. The last time it happened was two, perhaps three nights ago. When I noticed the light from my window, I could also see the porter walking back into the hotel, so I ran down to ask if he had noticed anything. It is inconceivable that he would not have seen the lights, yet, of course, his reply was, What? Lights? <sighs> he seemed more concerned with the wet, putrid sack of rubbish she was dragging through the foyer. At this point, Armstrong regarded me with almost wild eyes while uttering, What is happening, Watson? I am trained to identify the inexplicable, to diagnose my patient's afflictions. Why am I unable to make sense of this? I fear for my own sanity. On hearing this, I first inquired if he had approached the manager of the hotel for an explanation or to ask to be moved. Indeed I have. The manager was most apologetic and assured me that he would personally investigate my complaints. However, as the hotel is full, I was told that, at present, it was impossible to provide me with any other suitable accommodation within the hotel. Armstrong held my gaze for a few moments and then fell silent. With a nod of resignation and a sigh, he slowly rose and left. For my part, I continued to sit for perhaps a minute, as I considered Armstrong's dilemma in the vast glazed atrium of the hotel. It was only after his departure that I realised that I had completely forgotten to ask the number of his room. I knew only that it was on the second floor. Taking my pocket watch from my waistcoat, I found it to be little before ten o'clock. Given the hour, I decided to forego my planned evening stroll and to walk the short distance to the reception desk and speak to the night porter. As I approached the fellow, he looked up rather guiltily from his newspaper, which was barely concealed by the lip of his desk. I asked for Dr. Armstrong's room on the second floor, and, as I wanted to explore the beaches of Westcliff-on-Sea the following day, inquired if I might have sight of a copy of the local tide table. The porter I found to be most obliging. He removed his newspaper to reveal and then refer to a guest ledger. This, it seemed, was laid out by floor and room numbers. 
I was advised that Dr. Armstrong was in room 203, the first number being indicative of the floor. The porter then apologized that he would have to leave the desk for a moment to find a copy of the tide table. Apparently this was not something commonly requested by guests, but he added in passing that I was the second person to ask for it in the last few days. For my part, I was most grateful for the opportunity provided by his absence, as it gave me the chance to see the names of the occupants of the rooms on either side of Armstrong, and also the name of the guest that paced in the room above his. This information I quickly jotted in my notebook before casually placing it back into my jacket pocket. I stood waiting for several minutes before I heard the most bizarre yelp, followed by another brief shout, and then a heavy rattle as if a door had been shaken. The ruckus was over in an instant, but yet another sign that there was more to this than meets the eye. The young porter then reappeared with a copy of the tide table, complaining about the clutter which had caused him to take a uh, bad tumble. It's just me tidying up down here lately, and the chamber we use for storage has gone and flooded. Valises, furniture, cleaning supplies, linens, everything's piled up in the hallway outside of the chamber, if not in Mr Molinari's office. Thanking him for the tide table and promising to return the slim volume the following morning, I eagerly made my way back to my room, 205, where I am sat typing you this missive. It seems that room 202 is occupied by Mr. Luigi Moretti and Mr. Carlo Fanconi, two Italian gentlemen, scholars, who enjoy frequent walks along the beach. In room 204 there resides a gentleman by the name of Frederick Kern, noted as a young bachelor, very polite, excellent tips. And the room above that of the doctor, room 303, is occupied by a lady Elizabeth Graham, whose description stipulated, incredibly private, appears to be grieving. Avoid unnecessary interruptions. It is now close to eleven in the evening, and although I did not witness any strange lights as I approached my room, I do have two observations to report. The first, upon settling into my room, I took notice of a faint, inconsistent, but orderly tapping of sorts. The sound is easily lost in the noise of crashing waves and creaking floorboards, but if paying close attention, it can certainly be heard. When I ventured back to the foyer to inquire about this and ask the porter for paper, he suggested that it was likely the sound of another guest typing their own letter. The tapping noise was nearly inaudible from the second-floor hallway and impossible to note from the hotel foyer. It had ceased by the time I had returned to my room. My second observation concerns two most curious figures. During the moments in which the porter left his desk to fetch paper for me, I heard a shuffling in the distance behind me. I turned to look outside the hotel and spotted two remarkable men lurking near its entrance. One appeared to be impossibly tall, perhaps eight feet in height. The other was, by contrast, inconceivably petite in every aspect. They were both fixated on the front doors, and the taller one seemed to be mumbling something. The other one merely nodded. When the porter returned, I turned to him, startled. He asked if I was all right, to which I replied in question. Yes, just surprised. Are any of your current guests, well, rather tall? The porter began to answer me. I suppose Mr. Fanconi does have quite the presence. But as he talked, I turned to see that both men were already gone. At first blush, I know this seems more trivial than the sort of problem you might expect me to trouble you with, Holmes, but I worry that these odd trifles may hint at something more nefarious. If you have a moment, I would love to hear your thoughts. 
I will remain vigilant and continue studying this information until tomorrow, when I will seek out the hotel manager again. Warmest regards, Watson. This has been a Dear Holmes letter. Keep your eyes on this podcast feed for more letters from this and future cases, and send us your solution to this case for a chance to be named Featured Detective. For more information on the Featured Detective competition, visit dearhomes.com slash solve. The game is afoot. Foot.